morning, guys. Hey, first of all, um, let me explain. Uh, it's a little dark in here, and it's because the storm uh, blew out the electricity when we got here this morning. Um, things, nothing was really working, so I'm just glad everything is on. But uh, it's a little dark in here, but uh, bear with us uh, this morning. Uh, thanks for being here. Glad you're here. Uh, you survived the storm. Uh, love the cooler weather. Uh, I want to welcome all of you here, but also all the guys online in Burleson and in Brock and in Granbury and uh, Fort Worth, and then also all the women who watch Band of Brothers. Um, your secret's safe with us. Uh, there's, there's a lot of ladies watching, so we're glad everybody's here. Um, we're going to jump into chapters 18 and 19 this morning and go further into the life of Abraham. Uh, just so you remember, uh, we only have three weeks left. We'll end the week of the 14th. That's the week before uh, Thanksgiving. We always break before Thanksgiving because if I try to go past Thanksgiving, you never show back up. So uh, three more weeks, and then we'll be done with the first half of the book of Genesis, and then we'll pick it back up in the spring um, in January with the second half of the book, and we'll take it all the way through chapter 50. So open your Bibles to uh, chapter 18, and we'll dig into it this morning but let me open us up in prayer. Lord, I'm grateful for uh, the cooler weather, Uh, just a reminder of the seasons and that, Father, you're in charge of all of it. You made the seasons. They were your idea in the beginning, and Lord, we're grateful for this change, and we pray that you would uh, be with us this morning as we dig into these two chapters and go further into the life of Abraham. Lord, we're grateful for uh, the fact that you caused Moses to write all of this down so that we might have it. And as we look at his life, may you help us to apply everything we can from his life to our lives, that, Father, we might be men of faith, men who walk with you, men who um, follow your lead every day of our lives, that we walk before you blamelessly. And so, God, we thank you for this time together, and we pray your blessings on the time we have together around the tables and during this teaching time and just speak to us, Father, and we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so this, this morning, um, I've got kind of a strange title for this lesson, and you, you may get it, uh, some of you may not, but I, I've called it a righteous remnant, because we're going to see something happen in these chapters that is pretty interesting, that I know for, for me, uh, for years, bothered me. And it all revolves around this guy named Lot. So we're going to look at two characters, really, this morning, Abraham and Lot. And we're going to see that uh, Lot gets himself in trouble yet again, um, probably worse trouble than before. And yet we're going to see that he's considered to be a righteous man. And he's going to get saved by God from a very, very difficult situation in spite of himself. And so that's really the gist of where we're going. And it all revolves around these two chapters, chapters 18 and 19. So when we last left Abraham, or Abram as he was called earlier, and he's had his name changed, he got that new name from God. God told him that you're going to be the father of a multitude of nations, and he changed his name as kind of a a record of that, as a sign that this is going to happen. I'm changing your name to drive it home to you. So he gets a name change. He's got this covenant that he had before, God gave him the covenant a while back, this promise, this agreement, but now it's got a sign attached to it, the sign of circumcision. And then he's given him 
a firm delivery date. Remember, he said, I'm, I'm going to do something. I'm going to come and fulfill what I've said. He said, I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear at this time next year. So he's put it on the calendar, so to speak. Now, last week, we talked about the fact that this, this guy's had to wait a long time, 23 years he's been in the land of promise, and none of the promises have yet to be fulfilled. And I, I shared last week, I hate to wait, and I most certainly hate to wait, and then nothing happens. That's really frustrating. Um, I've had some issues with our security system at home, and I've been on the phone so many times over the last few weeks talking to somebody in a foreign country to help me with my security system who I can't understand and who at the end, when I've been on the phone for two hours, doesn't solve the problem. And nothing frustrates me worse than to waste time with no results. Well, this guy has spent 23 years waiting for the fulfillment, and he's still waiting. And he's now told, you're going to wait yet another year. And then something happens, and it, it, it's, it's going to lead us into chapters 18 and 19. It says that God left him. When he had finished talking with him, God leaves him. That, that's kind of how we left poor Abraham last week. He tells him, you're going to have a son, it'll be a year from now, and then he leaves. He just, he just bails. Um, and there's a sense in which Abraham is left alone. Now, we know he's not alone. We know that God's always with him. God is omnipresent. He, he sees everything. But yet, there's this sense in which Abraham is now left with Sarah, his barren wife, waiting yet another year for the fulfillment of the promise. And he's left to kind of just do his business, to just go about life. Well, what happens? It says that that very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. That's the business. Not a very fun thing to do, right? But that's exactly what God said. I want all of your, the males in your household to be circumcised. Now, we know from earlier that when he went to battle the, three, the uh, five kings of the east, Remember, they, they came and they uh, attacked the southern kingdoms there and they took captive everybody living in Sodom and one of the people they took captive was Lot. We know that Abraham has 368 men in his household. They're probably servants, slaves, but they, they, they all had to get circumcised along with Abraham and Ishmael. So that's what God left him to do. Everybody had to get circumcised. And this poor guy's 99 at the moment, so he had to get circumcised at 99, not a fun prospect. But that's what he was left to do, but God left. It's interesting that in the Hebrew, it's Allah. It, he, he literally left him there. He departed. Uh, it can be used to, to carry the idea of he ascended. And there's this idea in Abraham's life that, that I don't think I've ever looked at very closely, how much he had close contact, intimate contact with God Almighty, uh, Jehovah, Yahweh, where they communicated. I've never talked to God. I've never heard the voice of God. He's never shown up in my bedroom. He's never written anything on the wall. I hear from him regularly, but it's usually through the Word of God. This guy was talking with God. He had relationships with God. He... I don't know that he necessarily saw God physically, but there was definitely intimate communication, and yet God left. It's the same word used when Abraham left Egypt. Abraham went up. He ascended. He, Allah, he left Egypt and went back to where? 
to the land of Canaan. So there's this idea that he's left to do what God's called him to do. And again, God hasn't abandoned him, but God's been really clear, here's what I want from you. Here's what I expect you to do. Get circumcised, but then what else? Walk before me. Walk before me and be blameless. So that's kind of where we left Abraham. But what about Lot? Where did we last see Lot? Well, Lot is the nephew of Abraham, and when we last left him, he was in a slightly different situation. Genesis 13, 11 says, Lot chose for himself the whole Jordan Valley to the east of them. Now, what's he choosing? He's choosing land because Abraham has basically decided that the way to solve the problem they have, and the problem is they have too many flocks and herds and not enough grazing land. So he's taken it upon himself to say, I got to solve this problem, so I'm going to give my nephew his choice of the prime real estate. And Lot takes him up on it, and he chooses the Jordan Valley to the east of them. And he went there with his flocks and his servants and parted company with his uncle. Now, we, we looked at this, and my take on it is this is not a good decision. Why? Because it wasn't up to Abraham to give away the promised land. It belonged to his offspring, and Lot is not his offspring. He, he's his nephew. So this is not a, a, a thing that God has called him to do. It's a solution he's come up with, and it's not going to work out well. Because we know what happens. He, he Lot, ends up living in Sodom. He gets taken captive by the five kings from the east, and then poor Abraham has to go to battle and save his tail and rescues him. None of this is what God told him to do, but it's what he had to do because he made a decision on his own. We've seen over and over again with Sarah, with Abraham, that when anyone who's a follower of God decides to leave God out of the equation and play God, make your own decisions, it never seems to work out well. Well, it never works out well. It may go well for a while, but it always is going to turn south on you. And that's what we saw happen. But it goes on and says, he didn't just move into the Jordan Valley, which was a very fertile, rich valley. It says, Abram settled in the land of Canaan, and Lot moved his tents to a place near Sodom. And that, that I told you when we looked at it several weeks ago that that's a foreshadowing. It's, it's a way of Moses saying, it's a bad move, and it's not going to turn out well. He moved his tents all the way to a place near Sodom and settled among the cities of the plain. But the people of this area were extremely wicked and what else? Constantly sinned against the Lord. So you see Lot moving towards wickedness. He's moving towards Sodom. He's pitching his tent towards Sodom, but we're going to find out that wasn't good enough for Lot. He's not satisfied with being close to Sodom. He's going to actually move into Sodom. Now, just to give you an idea of where we're talking about on, on the map here, we don't know exactly where Sodom and Gomorrah are or were. Uh, there's a lot of conjecture that they were north of the Dead Sea. There's another group of archaeologists who say, no, 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 they were south of the Dead Sea, which is what I tend to believe. And then as you can see on this map, there's another group that thinks they were east of the Dead Sea. We don't know where they were. All we know is that Abram's in a place called Hebron, and Lot has moved away. He's moved to a new place, and he's moving closer and closer to a city called Sodom, of which we already know 
is wicked, and they sin greatly before the Lord. So again, we don't know exactly where it is, but we know that's where he's going. And that's where chapter 18 picks up. Chapter 18 is is really going to be about Abraham, and chapter 19 is going to be about Lot, but they're correct, they're connected at the hip, these two chapters. They go hand in hand. So it starts out, it says, the Lord appeared to him by the Oaks of Mamre near Hebron. So he is still where he was to begin with when he and Lot parted ways, and the Lord appeared to him. Remember, we saw earlier in chapter 17, the Lord went up, Allah, he left, he ascended. Now he's showing back up. Now this is a, again, a foreshadowing that Moses is giving us because in the text, it's going to be unclear to Abraham who he's meeting. But Moses is letting us know ahead of time that he's meeting the Lord, he just doesn't know it. So for the first time, Abraham is going to meet Yahweh face to face. He's heard from him, he's talked with him, but now he's going to see him physically which is a pretty significant thing in the life of any individual. So what happens? He, he sees him. He's, he's sitting at the door of his tent in the heat of the day, and he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men. Well, who's the he? Who's the him? It's Abraham. Abraham is sitting outside his tent, and he's going to see three men walking his direction. But it seems to be that they just show up. Now, I don't know if he's snoozing, if he's taking a nap in the heat of the day, and all of a sudden he opens his eyes and there's three guys standing there. But that's, that seems to be the gist of the text is that they suddenly appear. They, they catch him off guard. These three guys show up in the middle of nowhere. It's not expected. They shouldn't be there. And they show up and he says, when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and he bows himself to the earth and says, oh Lord, if I have found favor. Now what's, what's going on here? First of all, you have to understand that when he says, O oh Lord, he's not talking about Yahweh. This is, this is a term that, that isn't directed at God Almighty. He just sees three men who he doesn't know, and he's going to react to them. And it appears that they look like a nobleman and his two servants. That's why he's using this name, Lord. It's, it's the word Adon, where we get Adonai, and it means master. Um, it, it's not, we use it of God, or at least in the Old Testament, they use it of God, Adonai, but it really is just a word that means Lord or master. So these three men that he sees, one looks more superior or important than the other two. That, that's all we can glean from the text. So he says, Lord, he's speaking to one of them. And, and he's going to continue to speak to this particular one. And he says, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. He does not know who this is yet, but he's addressing them as somewhat prominent looking people. He's surprised to see them. What are they doing here? What are they doing in Hebron? And he's the only one living there with his immediate family and slaves and servants. And he sees these guys and he's going to show them what? Hospitality. He, he's going to entertain them because that was the thing you did. He says, let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread. Hey, take a rest. Let me serve you. Let me take care of you. That was just a a form of hospitality in those days. All cultures did it. If you showed up, they're going to take care of you. They're going to feed you. They're, They're going to want to 
host you in their home. They see you as an honored guest. And that's all he's doing at this point in time. He says, after that, you may pass on since you have come to your servant. I'm here to serve you. He takes a humble position and they agree to stay. They agree to spend time in his home. So what's, what's going on here? Well, I think what, what's happening is, is that we're giving a picture of this man, Abram, Abraham, and his heart and his attitude. And we see that he's trying to do the right thing. He's trying to take care of these visitors who he, he doesn't know. He doesn't know who they are. He has no clue where they're going. He'll find out in just a minute. But at this point, all he knows is you're here, three visitors alone, and I'm going to take care of you without any idea who they are. But he shows them what? Hospitality. He extends to them grace. He provides water to wash their feet. He has Sarah prepare bread. And it's really interesting. The, the quantity of flour he orders is like enough to feed an army. He's like going over the top. We're going to take care of these guys. And, and again, I don't know what's his motivation other than this is what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to take care of guests. And then he sacrifices a calf, which would have been very expensive for him to do. An entire calf for three guys. And you're going to see that they're the only ones who eat. He doesn't eat. Sarah doesn't eat. He's going above and beyond hospitality to take care of these guys. And then he serves them curds and milk, which is basically yogurt. He's giving them the best of what he has in order to meet their needs. He's gracious. He's hospitable. And I think part of what we're seeing here is that Moses is trying to show us something about Abraham, his character, his heart, his attitude. See, what did God tell him back in chapter 17? This is where we spent all our time last week. I am God Almighty, I am Jehovah, the Lord, and he says, walk before me and be blameless. We're seeing Abraham live this out. See, this isn't just go to church and be religious. This is live your life with wholeness and holiness, every part of your life. Here's Abraham showing holiness through what? just hospitality. I've told you guys before, I am not a a hospitable person. Um, When I go home, I want to be home. And I'm perfectly fine being at home with my wife, and that's it. And we would probably never have guests in our home were it not for my wife. She is extremely over-the-top hospitable. And my wife would have people in the home every night much to my chagrin. But see, hospitality is a sign of holiness. It's a sign that you care more about others than you care about yourself. And so what he's doing is he's showing that I'm going to walk before God blamelessly in every area of my life. Even these three strangers, I don't know. He could have easily said, hey, where are you going? Well, we're headed here. Hope you have a nice trip. You know, I'll give you a little bit of yogurt, but that's all you're getting from me. No, he goes over the top to show them hospitality. And then something interesting happens. They, they ask a question, where is Sarah, your wife? And he has to go, well, first of all, how do you know my wife's name? And how do you know her name's been changed from Sarai to Sarah? Remember, that's, that happened last week. It, it, 
it's, it's got to catch them a little bit off guard that, whoa, 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 wait a minute. How do you know my wife and how do you know her name and how do you know she's not here? But there's something going on. They're probing and they're beginning to ask questions. And he says, well, she's in the tent. She's in the tent. What, why is this pertinent? Why is Moses bothering to give us this information? See, it's interesting. They don't ask how she is. Now, we know who, who they are. We know that at least one of them is the Lord, Jehovah. But see, Abraham doesn't know that. And God asks the question. He doesn't say, how is she? Because he knows. He knows she's barren because nothing's changed. The year has not passed yet. The time for her to have Isaac has not arrived. And so that's not the question. He goes, where is she? Where is your wife? Now, I, I never really understood this until I started thinking about why this question? Why is God asking this question of Abraham? And the best I can come up with is that Abraham is embarrassed about Sarah. Now, if, if you think about it, if you have three prominent-looking guests show up at your house and you tell your wife to stay in the bedroom, that says a whole lot about what you think about your wife, that you're not inviting her to come out and meet these honored guests. See, what the text tells us is that she's in the tent, and he even, when he went in and said, hey, would you prepare some bread, he just basically left her in the kitchen. At no point is she brought out to enjoy the feast with these men. So I think he's a little bit embarrassed by his barren wife, that she's not yet delivered on the goods. And so he's left her in the tent. And he doesn't invite her to partake in anything. But what's interesting is that these three men, one of whom is Yahweh, has a message for her. And it's a message she needs to hear, but she's not going to receive very well. And it's the same message that God had given to her husband back in chapter 17. So what, what happens? Well, what's interesting is if you go back to the original language, it, it's, there's this idea that God speaks. Now, again, we know who he is because verse 1, Moses tells us. Abraham doesn't know. It just simply says in verse 10, and he said, I will. Some of your translations may, may say, uh, and the Lord said, I will. That's not in the original Hebrew. It's, it was put there because we kind of know. So let's just go ahead and clarify. This is God speaking. But see, Moses, or Abraham doesn't know this. He doesn't know it's, it's Yahweh. He just sees a nobleman and his two servants. And this nobleman says, I will. But how do we know who it is? Look at verse 13. The Lord, Jehovah, Yahweh said to him. This is, this is a slow, steady revelation for Abraham that he's talking to someone far more significant than a nobleman stranger. He's talking to Jehovah. That's what the word is there. It's not Adonai. And in most of your Bibles, it will be... Um, all caps. You know, it'll be L-O-R-D, all caps. It's Jehovah. It's Yahweh. That's who's talking to him. That's the one who's asking him, hey, where's your wife? And probably it begins to hit his little brain that he's asking about the woman who he said a year later was going to have a child. 
and I've got her in the kitchen baking bread. See, God is, is still trying to get this guy to believe the promise, but he's most definitely trying to get Sarah to believe the promise because it says she was in the tent listening, eavesdropping, waiting to hear who these guys are and what are they saying to my husband. And here's what she hears. I, the Lord says, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. It's the same exact thing he told to Abraham before he departed from him. He said, in a year, I'll be back. And what does he say? I'll be back. He restates it, but for whose benefit? Sarah's benefit. Now, again, we we don't know exactly what's going on here, but I conjecture that Abraham never told that good news to Sarah. He never went back and said, man, I talked to God, and God told me a year from now, you're going to have a child. Either he did, and she didn't believe it, or he failed to tell her because she has no idea about any of this. It catches her off guard. She's eavesdropping inside the tent. She hears the Lord, who she doesn't know who it is, say, I will surely return next year, and your wife will have a son. And here's her response. She laughs. She laughs to herself. It's absurd. It's ridiculous. It's the same thing Abraham did, right? When he heard the news, he laughed. And so she's in the tent and she laughs because she can't believe it. It's disbelief. It's, it's, uh, this is crazy. And, and it's really a laughter of derision. It's, it's like, oh, this is, this is stupid. Who does this person think he is? What a stupid thing to say. There's no way. I am so barren. I am so far gone. There's no way I'm having a kid. And again, she's in good company because it's exactly what her husband had done. We see it back in chapter 17. Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said, Shall a child be born to a man who's 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? He laughed. Well, guess what? She does the same thing. Neither one of them can believe that this is going to happen. Why? Because it's unbelievable. It's impossible. And even Moses in the text gives us his explanation of just how bad things are. He says, now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years, and the way of woman had ceased to be with Sarah. She is way past menopausal. She she is so far gone that she is not only barren, but she's gone past the viability of of anyone her age to be able to bear a child. It's like impossible. And that's why she laughs. She just, no, this is crazy. It isn't going to happen. I don't care who says it. It's not going to happen. And this is where I love how God speaks into our lives because he disagrees. It says, the Lord said to Abraham, remember, He's addressing her. She's in the tent, but he says it to her husband. Why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Man, if you're a coffee mug kind of scripture guy, put that on a coffee mug. Put that on a block of wood and put it on your desk. Put it on a post-it note and put it on your dashboard of your card. Is anything too hard for the Lord? That's a question we should ask ourselves every stinking day. And the answer is what? No. Nothing is too hard for God. Nothing is impossible for God. 
He can do anything. If he can create the world out of nothing, he can certainly create a child out of a barren womb. That's the whole point of this this chapter. Nothing is too hard for God. So a couple of questions. Can a barren womb thwart the creator God? Can can the fact that this woman is old, barren, postmenopausal, is any of that a problem for God? And the answer is what? No, not in the least. Can old age prove too much for the eternal one? Is time a problem for him? Is the fact that she's 90 years old going to be a roadblock for God Almighty? And the answer is no. Can a lack of faith derail the plan of God Almighty? No. We've seen it over and over again in the life of Abram and Sarah. They've lacked faith. They've struggled. They've come up with their own plan. But God's plan just seems to keep on working. And that ought to be a comfort for every guy in the room because you can't screw up God's plan. And I know you've tried because I've tried. I didn't mean to, but I'm always trying to fix God's plan with my help. And it never seems to go well. But for some reason, his plan seems to keep working. Nothing is too hard for God. Nothing. I love this from Jeremiah 32, 17. Ah, Lord God, it is you who made the heavens and earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Why is God having Moses write this entire book for the people of Israel who are standing on the banks of the Jordan River, getting ready to go in and conquer people who are greater and more powerful than them? He wants them to know beyond a shadow of a doubt, nothing is too hard for God, including what? Conquering the Canaanites, taking over the land. And you can do with that what you want this morning. Whatever you face today, whatever Canaanites you're going to go up against, whatever thing is happening in your life that is too great for you, it's not too great for God. That's what he's trying to tell you. It's not too much. I can handle this. I got this. Rest in me. Trust in me. Walk before me. Live your life in front of me wholeheartedly, wholly, and watch me do what only I can do. And so what happens? Well, the men set out. They leave. And from what we can tell, two of them leave, one stays. Remember, there's three. One of them is Yahweh, the Lord. The other two are obviously angels. They all appear like men, and two of them are going to leave. And they set out from there, and they look down towards Sodom. Here, here's where chapter 19 is going to start to show up. And who's, who's part of chapter 19? Lot. Why? Because he's moved his tent towards Sodom. So Abraham went with them and set them on their way. He sends two of them away. Verse 17 says, Then the Lord, Yahweh, says, Shall I hide from Adam something? Shall I keep a secret from Adam what I'm about to do, what I'm sending these two angels to go do? Should I tell him? But what's important is, where are they going? They're going to Sodom. And now we're going to see something happen in the text. We're going to see a a contrast established between Abraham and Lot, but more importantly, between the righteous and the wicked. And God's going to show Abraham something he needs to know. Remember, he's made a lot of promises having to do with what? Offspring, his offspring, them becoming a great nation, goy. Remember, we looked at that word. And they're going to be a great nation among many nations, goyim. And so he's about to show him what he means by the goyim, 
the Gentiles, the other nations, the non-Jews, the non-Israelites. And this stark contrast is going to be established for whose benefit? For Abraham's benefit. He needs to understand this. So these guys we know are now headed, these two angels are headed to a place called Sodom. And they're on a mission. They're headed to Sin City. Now, I've never been to Las Vegas, have no desire to go to Las Vegas. You may love Las Vegas, but its nickname is what? Sin City. Uh, and it's, it's rightfully earned. But it has nothing on Sodom and Gomorrah. We've already seen they're wicked. They're, they're incredibly wicked. They sin against the Lord regularly. And here's what it says. He goes, the Lord says, should I tell him about what I'm about to do? Tell who? Tell Abraham. He says, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave. I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Now, this verse does not mean that God is seeking information he does not yet have. That would make him not omniscient not all-knowing. He already knows. This is all for the benefit of Abraham. He's sending these angels to, to reconnoiter Sodom and Gomorrah to see just how bad it is. And it's for Abraham's benefit, but it's also for our benefit that we might see how wicked things are on the earth. Remember, we saw once before in the book of Genesis that things got wicked on the earth, right? Right before what? The flood. Everyone did wickedness all the time. They couldn't stop doing wickedness. They couldn't stop thinking about doing wickedness. And so God destroyed everybody on the planet except Noah and his family. Well, here we are again, but we're, we're talking about two cities. Same basic picture here, wickedness beyond belief. And God says, I'm going to go down and see just how bad it is. And he says, should I tell him? Should I tell Abraham what I'm about to do? Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great nation and a mighty nation, a powerful nation, a powerful goy? That's the Hebrew word. Should I let him know that I am going to do something great? Well, he's already told him that. So what's the point of this verse? What's he about to share with them? He goes on and says, and all the nations of the earth, all the, the goyim, all the Gentile nations, the non-Jews, the non-Israelite, the non-chosen people shall be blessed in him. I think all of this is an object lesson for Abraham to understand the difference between Israel and the rest of the world. The goy the nation of Israel, and the Goyim, the non-Israelites. And it's all going to be shown through these two cities. And that's what he says. I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord. See, he's supposed to live differently, right? He is chosen of God. He is to walk before God and be blameless and all his offspring, all the generations to come. But what about the nations? What are they doing? How are they living? Well, the way they always have since before the flood. They're living in wickedness and rebellion against God. And Sodom and Gomorrah are going to be the poster boys of that. The poster children of what it means to live apart from God. But as far as Abraham, 
I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. This is huge. This is critical to understanding these chapters. What's going on here? How is he supposed to live? He's supposed to keep the way of the Lord. What's the way of the Lord? We saw it back in chapter 17. Walk before me and be blameless. You and your offspring, your future generations. Walk before me and live your whole life in front of me as if I'm watching. Don't live like the goyim. Don't live like Sodom and Gomorrah. Don't live like the unchosen. Live like the chosen. Be different. See, this is going to carry on throughout the book of Genesis. And it'll carry on through Exodus where God on Mount Sinai gives them his law so that they might know what it means to live the way of the Lord in great detail. He's going to give them all these commands. Live this way so that you might be distinctly different from the rest of the world. And he's getting a small glimpse of it here in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Do righteousness. Do what is right. Do what is good. So with Abraham, who represents the nation, the Goy, and Sodom, which represents everyone else, you see these contrasts. Israel's chosen by God. All the other nations have been created by God. We've seen that over the last, what, 17 chapters. They are to be the keepers of the Lord's way. Sodom represents all those who are the keepers of their own way, everyone doing what is right in their own eyes. Israel's supposed to be the doers of righteousness. Everyone else are the doers of wickedness. All they can think to do is wickedness. That doesn't mean that everybody on this planet outside of Christ does wickedness all the time, but we do know that all their deeds are as filthy rags. They can do nothing to earn a right standing with God. So there's a, a huge difference between the two. They, the Israelites are heirs of the promise. Sodom represents all those who are what? Heirs of judgment. They're end is judgment unless they repent, unless they turn. So there's this contrast being established between the people who will come from Abraham and those who are of the world. This, this idea of being doers of righteousness is huge because that word in, in Hebrew means to, to basically produce, bring about. You are to do something, not just be something. You know, you hear, hear people say, well, I'm a Christian. Well, great. What does that even mean? How does it appear in your life? How do you live it out in real life? We're to be doers of the word, not just hearers of the word. It's supposed to show up in the way we live. Look at verse 19. To keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. You know, it it doesn't make a difference if you shout about justice, if you debate about righteousness and you claim to be, but you don't do it. It doesn't matter. And that's part of what we saw, you know, this last summer with everybody putting signs up in their yard about justice and righteousness and goodness and love, and, but they're not living it. Putting a sign in your yard doesn't make you just or righteous. It can oftentimes just make you hypocritical. So we're to do what we're called to do. And I think it's interesting, he uses the same word in verse 21, I will go down to see whether they, the Sodomites, have done asa altogether according to their archive. Are they doing the things that I know they're doing? And they are. They're bringing about, they're producing unrighteousness because that's all they know how to do. 
but it's to be different for the people of God. So Abraham drew near to the Lord, and he says, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? There's, we're not going to spend a lot of time here because basically what happens is there's, there's a, a conversation that goes on between Moses, or Mo, I keep saying Moses, Abraham and God. And he's bargaining with God, so to speak. And he begins to do this thing about, well, if there are 50 righteous people, will you spare the city? If there's 45, will you spare it? If there's 40, if there's 35, 30, he gets all the way down to 10. And he's like bargaining with God that surely as a righteous God, you won't destroy the righteous along with the wicked, would you? What's going on here? Why is he having this conversation? And, and God continues to say, okay, if there's 50, I won't. If there's 40, there, I won't. If there's 30, if there's 20, if there's 10, I won't. What is Abraham attempting to do? He's attempting to rescue Lot again. What does he know? He knows exactly where his nephew has moved. He knows he's moved into the city and he's being affected by the city. And so he wants to know, well, God, if you destroy Sodom, you're going to destroy my nephew. Will, will you save the city if there's 50, 40, 30, 20, 10? And see, he gets all the way down to 10. And he's hoping that there's at least 10 righteous people in this city. He wants to save his nephew. He saved him once before. He's trying it again. And he knows how wicked the city is, right? It's, it's well known in that region of the world that they know Sodom and Gomorrah are wicked. And he wants to know, God, are you going to do the right thing? Will you spare the righteous? Now, why would he want to know that? Because he is one of the righteous. He's one of God's. And he wants to know, if everything goes south, will you still save me? Will I be like Noah? Will you take care of me? Will you take care of Lot? Will you spare him? And, and God continues to agree. He says, surely you wouldn't do such a thing. God destroying the righteous along with the wicked. You wouldn't do that. You wouldn't destroy if there's 10 people left. And I think he's hoping there's at least 10 people left, including Lot and his wife and his daughters. And he's hoping there's that many. He's bargaining. He's negotiating with God over, think about this, righteousness and justice. He's, he's bargaining with the God of righteousness and justice, who is just and right and good all the time. And he's trying to get him to agree to, hey, spare my nephew. And God does agree. He says, hey, if I find 10, I will spare the city. I, I will spare them. The question is, how many will God find in the city? But see, God already knows how many righteous people there are in the city. And it ain't a lot, Right? How do we know that? Look at verse nine, or chapter 19. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot is sitting in the gate of Sodom. He's established himself there. He's been there long enough to become part of the city's culture. The gate is where everyone met to do business. He's there. He's part of them. And he sees them, and he rises to meet them, and he bows himself down to them. He seems to be doing the exact same thing that his uncle did when he met these same people, these two strangers. And he invites them into his home. He says, come into my home. Let me wash your feet. Let me take care of you. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. He bows himself. He shows them hospitality. He does the right thing. So in a, in a sense, what we're going to see is he's the right man in the wrong place. He should not be there. 
There's no reason for Lot to be living in Sodom, but that's what he's chosen to do. He's chosen to live among the wicked, and he shows these guys hospitality. And I think part of it's driven by he fears for their lives. Why? Because he knows how wicked his city is. And these two strangers are not going to receive a warm welcome, as the story goes on to tell us. He fears for their lives. He fears for their safety. He feels responsible for their well-being. And so he brings them into the home, his home. They say, well, let us just, we're just going to sleep in the, in the courtyard out here. He goes, no, 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 you don't want to do that. You need to come in my house. You need to be behind closed doors. And they agree. And he's doing what is righteous and just. See, this is going to blow some of us in the room away when we look at his life and we think, how can he be righteous and just and be living in one of the most wicked places on earth at that time? But you got to go to 2 Peter. And most of us are unfamiliar with this passage. Listen to what Peter says about Lot. He says, God condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and turned them into heaps of ashes. He made them an example of what will happen to ungodly people. But God also rescued Lot out of Sodom. Now catch this, because he was a righteous man. Every time I've read this passage, I go, what? What lot are you talking about? What, what Old Testament did you read? Because I read his life, and I think this guy's a moron, if nothing else, and he's certainly not righteous. There's nothing I see about his life. But he says, he was a righteous man who was sick of the shameful immorality of the wicked people around him. It bothered him that the people he lived with were wicked, just not enough to move, not, not enough to get out of Dodge, right? He just stayed there. But he goes on, he says, Yes, Lot was a righteous man who was tormented in his soul by the wickedness he saw and heard day after day. See, Peter, through the inspiration of the Spirit, is telling us that this guy, as bad as he may appear, was righteous and God rescued him in spite of him. Now, here's the thing you need to take home today. If you are in Christ, you are righteous because of the righteousness of Christ. You are deemed righteous by God because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ, and yet you do unrighteousness, right? You'll do it today. You'll do something today that is deemed unrighteous by God, and yet he will still see you through the blood of Christ and deem you righteous in his sight, and he'll rescue you out of all kinds of difficulties and problems. It's exactly what he does for, for a lot. He rescues him. See, he, he had compromised everything, all his, all his convictions. It may have bothered him, but it didn't bother him enough to leave. He just stayed there and put up with it. He sacrificed his integrity, his wholeness. He, he compartmentalized his life all for the sake of comfort. It was easier to live there than out in a tent in the boonies. And so he gave in. So righteous Lot did what? He surrounded himself by wickedness, willingly, of his own accord, he was never told by God to do this. And by doing it, he became ineffectual and what? Vulnerable. And we're going to see how, just how vulnerable he was in just a second. He was not holy, holy. He had decided that I'm going to dictate where I live and who I associate with, and I'll give God the rest. And it got him into trouble. So how many righteous people did God find? How many righteous people did those angels find when they went to the city? And it's pretty clear there aren't a whole lot. It says the angel seized his hand, Lot's hand, 
the hands of his wife and his two daughters, and he rushed them out. How many people are we talking about? Four. There weren't even ten. We're told that the two daughters had fiancés, and he tried, Lot tried to get them to leave, and they laughed in his face like, no, you're crazy. Nothing's going to happen. And they suffered the same fate as everyone else. And we're going to see from the text that really there's only one righteous person in the city, Lot. It should remind us of what? Noah. The world had gotten so bad that he was the last man standing before God destroyed everything. But he spared Noah, his wife, and their three sons. Here he's going to spare Lot and presumptively, what, his wife and two daughters. But what happens? How do we know he's the only righteous one? Because in verse 17, he's told, escape for your life. Don't look back. Don't stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. Don't look back. Don't long for Sodom. Put it in the rearview mirror and never go back. And what happens? But Lot's wife behind him looked back, and she was turned to a pillar of salt. She disobeyed God. She wanted Sodom. She longed for Sodom is, is the way the Hebrew reads. She, she missed Sodom. She didn't want to leave that world behind. And she died as a result. Well, what happens to Lot? Pretty sad story, right? We're going to blow through it because I don't need to get into all the sort of details. But Lot went up from Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters. For he was afraid to live in Zoar, so he leaves Sodom, Sodom gets destroyed, and he lives in a cave with his two daughters. Sigh of relief. Three people make it out, but it goes literally to hell in a handbasket. What happens? Well, his two daughters, we're going to find out, have been impacted by their time in Sodom. They have been influenced by the darkness. And you're going to see just this little dim light of three people come out of that dark, dark, dark place. And it reminds us of 2 Corinthians. How can righteousness, righteousness be a partner with darkness? How can light live with darkness? How can we associate with wickedness and expect to have any influence in our world? We can't. They did. How about this from Philippians? Be blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a crooked and perverse generation in which you are to shine as lights in the world. That is our calling. That was his calling. See, it wasn't necessarily that he moved into Lot. It's just that he was ineffective, moved into Sodom. He was ineffective in being there. He didn't have an influence. He was influenced by them. And it not only was going to destroy him, it's going to destroy his daughters. What happens? The firstborn said to the younger, our father is old. There's not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine and we will lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. Here we go again. We got a problem. Let's solve it. Now think about this. Where did they get the idea to do this? Well, probably growing up in Sodom, growing up around unrighteousness and wickedness. So they, their whole solution to their problem, which really is not a problem, it's not like God destroyed every man on the planet, they basically say, there's no men alive, so we've got to have sex with our own father. And they get him drunk, and they do it. Twice. Two times. They come up with a plan. Let us make him do this. It reminds me of this 
a phrase from a poem by Robert Burns, the best laid plans of mice and men often go awry. Boy, do they go awry in this case. Do they get screwed up? Another bright idea come up with, come up by two, two individuals and they're going to produce one of the darkest outcomes that could possibly happen. So they do it. Both the daughters of Lot become pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son called him Moab. He's the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He becomes the father of the Ammonites to this day. Remember, who's this written for? The people of Israel. They're standing on the banks of the river waiting to go into the land. And they are surrounded at this point on the wrong side of the river by these two nations, the Ammonites and the Moabites. And they will be their enemies. It's a huge problem. This whole decision tree produces bad results. And it goes back to Abraham giving the lot, giving Lot his choice of the land. He chooses the fertile Jordan Valley. He settles near Sodom. He moves into Sodom. He makes himself at home in Sodom. He raises his daughters in Sodom. They're susceptible to the temptations of Sodom. He loses his wife to the allure of Sodom. And then his daughters come up with this godless plan. This is the whole story in a nutshell. And the Ammonites and Moabites end up cursed. They become enemies of Israel for that time on. And here's what we know right before the people go in. No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the 10th generation. None of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever. You shall not seek their peace or their prosperity all your days forever. Man, what a, what a sordid outcome. But don't lose sight of the fact that there's the righteous and the wicked. There's those who are of God, those who are not of God. And we have to live in the midst of it, but we're never to become part of it. Abraham wasn't, Lot wasn't. So here's your questions. How does this story illustrate the idea that our choices have consequences? Consider the chain of influence started by Abram's decision to give Lot his choice of land. It started with something so simple, but it ended so poorly. Our decisions do have consequences. Go back and look at that second Peter passage. How does Peter's description of Lot as a righteous man change the way you read the story? See, I want to demonize Lot. I want to make him unrighteous. I want to make him wicked. And he gets his just desserts. But he's rescued by God because he's declared righteous by God. And think about what that does when you think of God in your own life. Finally, share a time in your life when you considered something to be too hard for God. Why do we think that way? Why do we go there that something could possibly be too hard for God to do? He showed him over, over, showed us over and over again, nothing is too hard for me. Well, Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for these men. And I pray that as they talk around the tables that you would open up their lips and open up their hearts to hear what you would have to say through each, through each other and through your spirit that, Father, we might hear and apply what you want us to hear that we might be men who live apart from the world, that we might live uh, godly lives, holy lives, the way you've called us to live, even in the midst of a perverse and wicked generation. May we be lights shining brightly. And I pray this in Christ's name, amen.